Welcome to In Good Faith. Today we have a special panel discussion on how to talk about religion with four local clergy members. And if you are a longtime listener, you recognize some of our guests, uh, three of the four, as previous guests on our show. And in our show notes, we'll put their episode numbers if you'd like to hear more from them sharing their stories. Around the table here in our studio, Rabbi David Levinsky from Temple Har Shalom in Park City. Bishop Carla Long from the Community of Christ in Salt Lake City, moving after the beginning of the year to be a general officer of Community of Christ, a counselor in the presiding bishopric. Imam Shuaib Dean of the Utah Islamic Center with us, and Jan Saeed from the Baha'i Faith, where she's on the regional Baha'i Council of the Four Corner States and works at Westminster College as director of the Office of Global Peace and Spirituality. Thank all of you for coming and having this conversation. I'm going to just jump in because you are people who have experience speaking about faith, both with your own congregations and with total strangers, people you get invited to be on panels. And I guess uh, we thought we'd start with an elephant in the room, which is, are you here representing your entire faith today? When, when people invite you to a panel, do you ever feel that pressure? Imam, do you feel that? Well, um, the, um, the answer is absolutely not. Okay. I mean, absolutely not. We don't represent, I don't represent the, the, my faith tradition in the sense that the, I don't represent my, um, the larger Muslim community. I represent my congregation of three to 400 people. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes people expect me to answer for why women in Saudi Arabia don't have driving privileges, <laughs> right? I can't answer for that. <laughs> I don't represent 1.2 billion Muslims, but I do represent my congregation. Well, and I am so comfortable that we can talk in that way. Any other commentary if you had that experience of feeling like you're called to represent the whole faith? Absolutely. I, 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 it feels like I'm speaking for all of Christianity here. I don't even know if I can speak for my own congregation because in Community of Christ, we have so many different opinions and we encourage all these different opinions and different thoughts and so many different questions that we actually have a policy called faithful disagreement. And for us, it's a good thing because we want people to disagree because that's when we grow and that's when we learn. So I feel like I might just be representing myself here. (laughs) (laughs) And that is just fine as well. I tend to jump around. You know, I have a lot of different subject positions that I can take. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a rabbi. I've got a PhD in religious studies. I'm a rabbi of this particular community. So the way that I try to manage that is that if I'm People assume I'm speaking as the rabbi. If I'm not, I identify it as such, where I say, um, you know, I'm putting on my religious studies hat or something of Mm. the sort. I think it's also whenever I talk about Judaism, I I differentiate between what Judaism has historic, the position Judaism has historically taken on a particular position and what contemporary Jews think about it. And there's usually a pretty wide space between the two. I have some Jewish friends who say, and you could correct me if I, I'm paraphrasing. If you, wherever you have two Jewish people talking, you have three opinions. Absolutely. I mean, there's a culture of argument, and an argument is not a negative thing in Jewish culture. It's just how we interact with each other. It's, it's a non-doctrinal religion, even in its most orthodox forms. Uh, so uh, a religion where, yes, there are, there are a lot of opinions. So our challenge is, is to, uh, to hold those arguments and to hold those disagreements in a way that's productive. Mm. Oh, that's just one more commonality between us. Whoever there's two Muslims, there's three opinions. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> so it's like we have seven guests here today. That's great. Um, Jan Saeed, how about you? Well, in the Baha'i faith, we don't have clergy. So that is one of the new revelations of Baha'u'llah is that every individual should be searching the path for truth through the teachings of Baha'u'llah and the guidance, the spiritual guidance that is there. However, we do have councils and um, local spiritual assemblies, regional by councils, national spiritual assemblies, and the Universal House of Justice, which are bodies of nine individuals. And I am 
have served on different ones of those over the years. But it's really that we're here to be of service and service-based is how Baha'is see our roles on those different institutions. So we definitely come, as was stated, as an individual. And yet our society is so hierarchical in thinking that it almost always needs to be stated that this is my understanding, mm. this is my current understanding, and I am just speaking as an individual. Great. I have heard it said that we're told it's impolite in public to talk about uh, religion and politics. And so we become really bad and don't know how to talk about religion and politics. So let's focus on the religion part of that and just let everyone know if you think that's rude, you should turn off the podcast now. What goes well when you talk about religion with people of other faiths? Can you tell me what seems to work for you, what you have seen go well between? I think, well, for starters, um, especially in Utah, talking about family values, mm. uh, there's a lot of emphasis in Islam and in many religions of the world on the family unit mm. and how the family unit should be strong. And I think that's what we share. That's something that we share with the larger uh, LDS community in Utah. So finding commonalities Correct. rather than, okay, how are we different? Yes. That's where you would start. You would eventually have to address the differences. Mm -hmm. um, that's differences in belief, not particularly in practice, because we all... Uh, all the religions of the world teach virtue. You know, yeah. be kind to your neighbor, not to lie, not to cheat. Uh, so, but you start. Uh, so, yes, there's em there's emphasis there too. There's a lot of things that we, the values that we share, and we can uh, work together on on projects that uh, that bring us uh, together on those values. Thank you. Carla, you mentioned that even within your particular congregation, people are coming from different places. So. How does it even go well within? You talked about this, uh, not cheerful, but agreeable disagreement, something like that. Faithful disagreement. Thank you. Yes. Uh, for us, you know, what brings us together is that we, in our congregation, and I think in the wider um, Utah area, is that what brings us together, I think, is that service for people and wanting people to have better lives, wanting people to to bring in from the margins, like for us, for what, what Jesus did, what Jesus taught us is bringing those people in and um, helping the marginalized, helping the people who definitely need help. That's what we do. And that's what I think is the commonality for all of the religions. And that's why I think it's so beautiful when we can all work together. Any other comments? One of the things that Imam Shuaib and I have served on for the last 20 years and on and off in different capacities is the Interfaith Roundtable of Salt Lake City and the Salt Lake Valley. It started in 2002 with, well, a few years before, the planning for the Olympics. I was the first chair and currently the vice chair. I've, I've taken a back seat from leadership until recently during COVID. It was a little tight, yeah. and I offered to assist with um, another Muslim friend that took the lead during that time frame. And she and I have continued this, you know, out of the clash of differing opinions comes the spark of truth is a Baha'i quote. Mm. And that if we don't have that spark of truth out of the clash of differing opinions, we're, we're kind of speaking in an echo chamber of people that just believe as I do. So it's actually very critical that we listen and really learn to be in community working towards things that we all believe in. Mm. But of course, sometimes things don't go so well. So what causes it not to go well uh, in your experience or what have you see, either seen or experienced yourselves? For me, what I found is that the word truth kind of gets in the way a lot. Um, and I think that we have to widen our definition of the word truth in a lot of ways. And I don't think that there's one thing that's absolutely true. If someone or a religion believes that they are absolutely true and there is no other way to look at anything else, then it's very difficult to have those conversations, I found. And so... so I, for me, I'd kind of like to just throw the idea of truth out the window. <laughs> and so then we could get to the heart of what's really... Which sounds paradoxical when talking about faith. Absolutely. It absolutely does. But man, sometimes I just feel like truth is just a big old box that we place ourselves into and feel secure in it. And if we could just break open that box, I think that a lot of great conversations could happen. Mm. 
I don't think it's paradoxical at all, Steve, to be really honest with you. This idea of truth claims with a capital T gets back to the Greeks in the 6th century BCE, and uh, it's not the only way of thinking. Mm. Um, there are other ways of thinking about the role of humans. Uh, yeah, Judaism tends to be a little bit more humble about that and say that if, if there is truth, it's in the, in the realm of the divine, not in the realm of the human, and that we're in fact incapable of, of achieving truth with a capital T. Mm. Um, so we should um, humbly accept our, our, our imperfections and our inabilities and move forward from that premise in the conversations. Mm. I would like to introduce uh, another T word, uh, which is trust, that uh, for interfaith relations, there has to be a level of trust and friendship at the higher level amongst the clergy of both faith traditions. Because if you don't have that trust, for example, we need to trust each other that we're not out to convert one another, right? We need to trust each mm, other yeah. that we don't have any other agenda. Um, and there has to be that. Fr- and that will trickle, have a trickle down effect on our congregations. Yes. So I think that's one of the foundational um, building blocks to have a good interfaith relations. What do you see getting in the way of people, just, I mean, people who meet in the store and they either see from their clothing or from something overheard that they're of a different faith? And most people are live and let live, but occasionally someone feels like they have to speak up and say something. Um, or am I just imagining this? Is this something you see happening? I think, uh, for example, if, you know, my wife, she wears a headscarf and, mm-hmm. and a woman came up to her in Walmart and said, you know, this is America. You don't have to wear that. So mm-hmm. my wife said, I want to wear this. So it's, there is a preconceived notion, I think, based on what they see or hear in the media. Uh, and, and that's, um, that's a roadblock. You know, that's not helpful to have any relation, to move forward in any way. It seems like just being able to talk to each other or and actually listen, rather than I've, what you said, Imam, about we trust that we're not here to convert each other. We're here to, to ask about, about beliefs. How do you encourage that kind of listening? I think one of the um, exciting things that has happened recently for BYU and Westminster College was something called the Courageous Pluralism Project. And Ibu Patel, out of the Interfaith Youth Corps, which is now called Interfaith America, right. does a lot of training for students, and we'd taken students to a lot of programs and came up with our own um, guidelines for sharing in Courageous Pluralism. And they took 12 universities and paired them up, or 12 pairs of universities, with a very liberal school and a very conservative school, and you can figure out which of those two in Utah were. And (laughs) we came up with guidelines for how do you listen and work with one another. Mm. And I think that key part of creating a culture of courageous pluralism means that we are absolutely slowing ourselves down in order to listen with more compassion and love. And that true consultation is spiritual conferencing in the attitude and atmosphere of love. And if we think about it that way, then we, t- it, you know, we put a spiritual slant on what we're doing in the streets. Whenever we see something that looks different, instead of attacking it, we have to think, what don't I understand? Mm. And maybe ask a question first rather than tell them what they should Are be doing. Are there places where that can happen? I mean, here we've invited you. We've made the effort to, to talk to you. But... Are, are there places that kind of listening can happen just in society, or do do we actually have to go in search of that? There's two really popular brand new books that when you talk about book groups and things that we want to do. One is a book called Think Again by Adam Grant, which is definitely a secular book, but it's about rethinking before you say something. And another one is Build Something Better. That's Ibu Patel's And that's book. his latest book, which I personally haven't read yet, but every other one of his books I've read have been very I just insightful. finished that, and he goes to great length to explain everything he did wrong. <laughs> He's very humble in saying, and here's how I did this wrong, and here's how I offended this friend, and which he didn't have to say, but I thought was actually quite humble and helped us all to see, oh, I could see myself doing that if I wasn't thinking. One thing that I was thinking was, I think one of the reasons we don't 
ask questions and we don't listen is our own insecurity because we don't want to be seen as someone who's ignorant. We don't want to be seen as someone who doesn't understand, I don't know, where they're even coming from. And so that insecurity, I think, plays a really big part in the questions that we ask and and what happened to you and mom and what happened to your wife and Walmart and mom. Like, maybe they didn't even understand. And so I, I just think that working through those insecurities and... I know this sounds really Pollyanna of me. I've actually been told I look like Pollyanna, but I really do think that relationships are absolutely the key. Once you're in a relationship with someone and you've talked with someone, you have you know who they are, then most of those things kind of just go away. Like the scariness of different religions or so on and so forth, it just goes away because they're just people, just like you. So I think insecurity is a really, really big problem. And I think that relationship piece is what we're missing. Mm. Also, with some religions, there's a really strong orthodoxy or a sense, like a central governing body that will say, you know, this is what we think. <laughs> this, is, this is how we interpret this scripture. And then there are other denominations where you, you listen to what you feel God is saying that it means. And is there any conflict there when, when people meet and are either far on the orthodoxy end or, or I don't know what the word would be, uh, but just less orthodox and more trusting in their personal guidance from God. Yeah, I actually think that's the that's the biggest division and the most difficult problem as far as the interactions among the different religions. I can get along. Uh, it's a much easier conversation for me to talk to somebody from a different faith who adheres to a liberal variety of that faith. And I don't mean political liberalism. I mean philosophical liberalism. Right. Um, you know, so you know, me talking to the local Episcopalian priest is a lot easier than me actually talking to an Orthodox rabbi. Um, these are, I think that is the most es- essential split, and it plays out in in so many ways, even down to the interfaith councils, where the interfaith councils tend to be split. In some communities, there'll be the Orthodox interfaith council and the liberal interfaith council because the folks can't just talk to each other. Mm. Or there's one interfaith council, um, like in Park City, which is all the Christian orthodoxies and the Christian liberals don't participate. Um, you know, so th- th- that I think you're on to something there. That mm. I think is really the biggest claim, which really in some ways gets back to the, the epistemological question you asked around knowledge and truth. Um, you know, a tradition that is making, um, you know, claims that they have uh, true knowledge uh, about the universe. Um, there's just really not much of a conversation after that. Mm. How do you know if someone's sincere? Because someone could ask the very same question out of sincere lack of knowledge, and someone else could ask it sort of like this woman who came up to your wife, said, you know, this is the U.S., you don't have to do that. Um, That's not helpful. (laughs) And not really sincere, more more of a telling, but how can you tell when someone's sincere? Well, I think uh, for me, it's more like the body language, the Mm -hmm. tone of voice, the attitude. you know, in this particular case, it was the waving of the finger <laughs> that, that, <laughs> finger that gave it away. Um, <laughs> yes. This is In Good Faith. We'll be right back. Welcome back to In Good Faith. What about people within your own tradition who are going through what some would call either a faith crisis, a faith expansion. How do you keep relations with them while they're going through what might be a difficult thing for them personally? In in, a, in our tradition where it's where this type of questioning is really encouraged and seen as positive, I love it. That means someone's engaging with religion. Please, teenager, walk in my office and say you don't believe in God because we're actually having a conversation about Judaism. Um, it is is more our, is more our approach. So it's just it's not really an issue, or it's the opposite. It's seen as positive. Yeah. I find that that is the question for many of the students at Westminster is, you know, just it's almost better to have no religion than to have a religion that is causing disunity. Mm. And certainly that's even one of the Baha'i tenets. And 
I, I think very much so with my Jewish brothers and sisters that, that questions are good. It's in fact one of the months of the Baha'i calendar is questions. And if we're not mm. questioning, we're not using that God-given mind of to brain to think, how do we know and love God if that's what we're here for? if we don't question it. And I think one of the basic principles of the the Baha'i faith is the oneness of humanity. And it is not for us to judge each other. No one knows what our end will be. And so we're all on that continual process of learning and trying to be and do while we're here on this planet together. Hmm. Well, Community of Christ well, we call ourselves a peace church. We It's on our seal. We have the lion, the lamb, and the child all together. Like we believe in peace and we work very, very hard for peace. And so when people come through our door wanting to talk to us, um, I almost always say <laughs> that we hope that you will find a home. If it's with us, wonderful. If it's somewhere else, wonderful too. But we believe that if people find their spiritual homes, then we will have peace on earth, which is one of our goals. Mm. So the peace on earth for us and the peace that reigns in people's hearts is of the utmost importance. So I actually work with a lot of people who have gone through faith transitions, just like you were saying. Um, and faith transitions are really hard. They're really painful and really difficult to go through. And it's been it's been a learning experience for me to walk through those faith transitions with people. And I have been so grateful that they have been kind enough to let me in and let me um, hear what they're thinking, hear what they're going through. And I absolutely have, my faith has expanded because of walking with people as they go through these things. Um, I have not had a faith transition, although I do think that my faith being in Utah the last six years has kind of just blown up into a much larger, much more inclusive type of faith. So I've just been really grateful that people have been trusted me with those stories. I'd like to ask each of you what you wish people knew about your faith tradition that um, maybe people misunderstand and and you just wish they would know this. Any of you have thoughts on that? Oh, for starters, um, um, there's there's many things, but uh, it's an Abrahamic faith and mm. Prophet Muhammad, uh, it's not like he just woke up one day and stuck his head out of a tent and said, I'm a prophet or I think I'm a prophet. His lineage goes back to Abraham and Ishmael. Mm. So we're all part of the larger Abrahamic family. Great. Hmm. I, I think for me as a Baha'i, first of all, that it is not a part of another religion in the fact that it's, it isn't Islam. It's not B'nai breath out of a, a sect of, of Judaism, but it's an independent religion in one regard. And now I'm going to fuzzy the water all over again. Baha'is believe in the unity of all religions. And we just believe that Baha'u'llah is the latest manifestation of God for this day. And for us to deny any of the past manifestations of God is to deny God himself or itself. Baha'is believe God is the unknowable essence. And so the labels that we use with words is sometimes hard and it gets confusing. But the basic principle of the Baha'i faith is the oneness of humanity and working towards those things that are common, those commonalities to all of us. So I think it gets, even when I hear myself explaining it, I'm going, oh, people are going to be confused. <laughs> <laughs> the, thing, the thing that I get the most from, from Christians talking about Judaism is that they associate Judaism with what they call the Old Testament and what mm -hmm. we call the Torah. Um, I did not wake up this morning and sacrifice an animal to God. Um, so clearly a lot has happened um, <laughs> since, the old, since the Old Testament and the religion has changed mm -hmm. quite a bit. Mm -hmm. um, where contemporary rabbinic Judaism is about interpretation of the Bible. Um, and in that interpretation has radically transformed it. So if you're looking to see what Judaism is like, the, the Bible's a really bad place to look as far as contemporary rabbinic Judaism. Uh, I think that's with Christians, that's the misconception I run into the most. So people, people should reach out to a living person. Yeah, a living person who's, I mean, that's good for, if you want to find out about any religious tradition, talk to someone who's living that tradition. Mm. Thank you. Um, you're in an interesting position, all of you, as clergy. 
So, I mean, you, you have some authority to speak to people and to consult with people. Um, in a lot of ways, that's good. Does that ho- ever hold you back in having conversations with people? Or is that just not an issue? Well, let me say I'm not clergy, remember? Oh, that's, that's <laughs> As, as Baha'is, we don't have clergy. But I do think it is confusing, again, for people to think that there is a religion that doesn't have that and that every individual has to use independent investigation of truth and to search for us the writings of the Holy Ones and specifically of Baha'u'llah, the, the latest, that is written in his own pen mm-hmm. and was you know, in 1840s to 1892 in that time frame. So... It makes it a little different from what you're saying, mm. but I'd love to hear those clergy that are put on the spot. Yeah. You know, I, th- I think the key thing is being aware of uh, that it's a role um, and that we all have multiple aspects of our identity and multiple roles that we play in the world. I'm a father, I'm a rabbi, um, I'm a rock musician, and I'm, you know, I'm, like, I'm, I'm a lot of things. Um, so uh, just being aware of what role I'm inhabiting when I interact with people, if they're interacting with me as the rabbi, it's generally pretty clear, and to take on, take on the rabbi role. And then if I'm shifting role when I'm talking to them, to identify that I'm shifting role yeah. to them, and also being really aware of dual role, because there's oftentimes when there are two, more than one role that are going on at the same time, and the person in front of me is not going to track that. It's my responsibility to track that and to keep a, a, a finger on two places on the page, so to speak, as like I'm talking with them. Like here are some personal thoughts of mine, that kind of... Ex- exactly, and differentiating when, when I'm, when I'm sh- when identifying it when I'm, shif- when I'm shifting role. There's mm-hmm. times when the person really needs the rabbi where I have to hold back the one role in the background, even though it's serving them, and I'm using the rabbi role primarily for the service of them. That's really what it gets down to. There's a person in front of me, and as the rabbi, my job is to serve. So what, as, what aspect of those various roles is going to serve that person really becomes the question. But as clergy, it's my job to be able to track that. Um, it's not, their, it's not, it's not the, you know, the person in front of me's job. So each of you have participated on interfaith panels and maybe even different congregations or, or working on interfaith projects. None of you had to do that, but you did. And what is the good that you see coming from that? What motivates you to want to be involved that way? Well, I think um, uh, 9-11, um, you know, made us, so to say, come out of the closet. Yes. Uh, the Muslim community. Before that, we just kept to ourselves and we realized that, no, um, we need to, for, for the sake of our survival, we, uh, the larger public needs to understand who we are and what we believe in. Mm. So for us, it's, a, it's now a requirement uh, that we actually come out for our own benefit. And, but also, I think uh, on another level, you can't really be a good uh, Muslim unless you appreciate people of other faith. Because Islam teaches not just tolerance, we don't like the word tolerance, but to appreciate people of other faith. Uh, and every and every religion, of course, there's good apples and bad apples, but we but we recognize that the larger majority of the people are very good-hearted people, and we need to interact with them and and explain ourselves better and understand them better. Mm. In Community of Christ, we have. A couple, we don't call them this, but for the larger group, um, we call it like goals for us. And one of our goals is to abolish poverty and end needless suffering. Now, Community of Christ is about a quarter of a million people worldwide. So if we are going to abolish poverty and end needless suffering, we probably are not going to be able to do that all by ourselves. And um, it's not just, I don't think it's just our goal. I think it's many, many goals around the world. And so... We find it really important to work with other faiths um, to do those things. And of course, we want people to feel loved. We want people to know that they have worth. Um, All of those things are very important to us. And if everyone in the world is acting in this way, then our job gets a lot easier. Um, 
I'm actually the chairperson of the Utah Valley Interfaith Association, and I have tried really, really hard over the last year to bring in so many different people from so many different faiths. And it's actually a little bit harder than you might think. <laughs> um, I haven't it, told... What are people's reasons not to? Is it just time concerns or... I don't know if people actually see the value that I see. And mm-hmm. I wish that they would. I've I've put out a video about talking about the importance of interfaith. And I've, I've written letters to different clergy around talking about the importance of interfaith. And I do think people, clergy are busy. Oh my gosh, there are so many things that are pulling at us all the time. So many different concerns, so many different things to do. Clergy are busy, busy people. But I don't know if the importance of interfaith has really grabbed a hold of people yet. And I do think that it is absolutely, absolutely essential. To that, I think having worked with the Interfaith Roundtable in Salt Lake City, and we had that challenge at, at 1.2 right after the Olympics and 9-11, there was absolutely a draw to how do we understand what's going on in our world mm-hmm. and how do we truly do the golden rule that's in every single one of our religions and philosophical beliefs and scientific, scientists, Carl Sagan and others, Einstein, will come up with things. Of course, they have their own underpinnings of, rea- of, of religious reality as well. But what you said is absolutely true, uh, Carla, as far as the busy of ourselves in society. And if you're in a small faith community, you have to serve your people mm. that are, are looking to you as a leader. In the interfaith movement, there became so we have over 400 names that are on the list in Salt Lake City of people that are engaged. However, we feel like there needs to almost be a separate that meets less often, and we call it the advisory board of those folks that are in the service of community in their own faith traditions, whereas the people on the interfaith roundtable and serving um, on the daily basis, it seems that they are someone that has caught that fire and that need in their community, that we need to have a greater understanding of who are the other children of God in this world that may not be right in my house, but they're in one of the many other houses Mm. that God has called us all to to be kind and loving with one another. I think the real key is that um, the real power of spiritual growth comes from productive discomfort. And encountering people that are different than us is one of the easiest ways to have that happen. Um, So we have this encounter um, that makes us feel really uncomfortable because somebody believes something different than us. Something's doing, someone's doing things that are different than the way that we do things. We move into the unfamiliar. And the key to that is to be absolutely willing to do as much as possible, not only to encounter it, but to change from that encounter. And, of course, there are going to be boundaries with that. If Well, if I do this or believe this, I'm no longer me anymore. Well, then you shouldn't believe or do that. Very easy, right? Mm. Those, those boundaries need to be respected. But up to that line, there should be a willingness to have new experiences, to explore new ideas, and to change through that process, knowing that that's going to be really uncomfortable, but that it's going somewhere as far as your spiritual de- spiritual development. And that's true within one's tradition. That's true with interactions with people from other religious traditions. But seeing um, productive discomfort as really the primary path of spiritual growth, that's how we grow. Well, I like these, these paradoxical pairs. I've heard of faithful disagreement and productive discomfort. That's a skill to learn, is to be uncomfortable, but just sit sit in it and listen to others and not feel threatened. But I think as soon as you know people, like we've talked about, I think that fear, I think fear is maybe at the heart of misunderstandings or certainly after 9-11, what the Muslim community had to go through. Um, People just making assumptions and misunderstanding. I mean, that had to, that was obviously hugely difficult. Um, I would love to know maybe one thing in your tradition that you just cherish and love, that brings you joy, that you're glad it's there, that it's part of your life. I'd just like to know from each of you if there's something like that. 
Before anybody jumps in on that, can I add two more Please. that seem the opposites or whatever? When we were talking with some local spiritual assemblies in the Phoenix area uh, in Tempe, they came up with this idea that we need to think about change over comfort and reflection over routine. And I think that's part of interfaith work, too, is that if we can think that I can broaden my view through changing who I talk to, change over comfort, and reflection over routine, that we start building a larger sense of community. So it's not just, we've always done it this way, so we'll continue to always do it this way. Mm. Yeah. And I think that's why we stay in our little comfort zones instead of expanding to a global society that's embracing Good. So as far as something that you love, that you just love in your faith, would you tell me about that? Uh, for us, it's, uh, for, for many Muslims, it's, it's the Quran. The, you know, it's, it's a way of connecting with the divine um, and being able to recite the Quran. And for many Muslims don't understand what they're re- reading because it's an Arabic Quran. They'll have to uh, rely on a translation, mm. but they'll learn just enough Arabic to recite the Quran. The, the place the Quran has in Islam is the the status of uh, Jesus in Christianity, mm. and you have that in, you know with you every day. So something to always refer to, correct, and remind you and teach you. Yes, great. Any others? In Judaism, the main mediation between humans and the divine are small actions. We have the mitzvot, 613 commandments, which are very small deeds. It's something like, I say a blessing and light a candle Friday night at sunset. They're small actions that are part of daily life. That's the beginning of Shabbat. The beginning of Shabbat, the beginning of the Sabbath, you know, as, as an example. And what this really teaches is that religious life is is woven through the small things that we do daily and that's the way to encounter god and the mitzvot the commandments are there to to make us aware of the presence of god in everyday life uh, it's not something grand you know compare phrase the book of deuteronomy it's not something that's across the sea it's right mm-hmm. here in our mouth mm-hmm. so we should do it and um that's that's really the key is being able to to recognize these the spiritual opportunities of the small action. Thank you. Yeah, I agree with both statements that as far as reading the word of God and turning towards that that supreme guidance and then those daily actions that we're we're doing and we're being as sometimes in the Ruhi Institute it talks about the that it's not just doing, it's not just being, but it's that spiritual evolution of who we are and that we're living every day, not for the future, but for now. And yet the Word of God keeps pulling us forward to and giving us hope. The principle of the oneness of humanity, I think, is one of the overarching teachings that gives me hope every day, too. And I'm most happy when I'm in a space where there's people of diverse backgrounds that we can learn from each other and not feel threatened by each other, but embraced. And so even to sit around this table today is, is a gift for me. Um, I There are so many things I love about Community of Christ. I love that we're really low church <laughs> and our worship <laughs> services are very... Steve, you've been to a Community of Christ worship service. Uh, we're very low church. My four-year-old daughter got up and gave the closing prayer last week and she said, Dear God, we need to be kinder. Amen. <laughs> and it was this beautiful little <laughs> prayer that from her four-year-old heart that just um, was was just gorgeous. So we're very low church, which I really appreciate. We're, we're very relational. And then what I really love about Community Christ is we have these things called enduring, our enduring principles. And they're really our values, um, Community Christ values. And I think that in this day and age, we aren't actually all that great about identifying values and what how we live our lives. And so like the church has them. We don't say you have to abide by them, but there are things that define who we are. Things like the sacredness of creation, uh, things like the worth of all persons, all are called. We believe in grace and generosity. These are these are just a few of the values that we hold in community of Christ. And I have found myself that when I have like a difficult decision to make or things are really, really hard, I actually go to those values. I go to those enduring principles and think, now, 
Which one of these decisions is upholding the worth of all persons? Which of these decisions is upholding that all are called and the sacredness of creation and so on and so forth? And so that, I think, has been a real gift for a lot of people, especially when our congregation has been through a lot of faith transitions and they found themselves kind of on a a foundation that's a little bit rocky that has really helped them and me to say, these are my value systems. This is how I want to live my life. So that's one thing I really love about Community of Christ. Thank you. This is In Good Faith. We'll be right back. Welcome back to In Good Faith. I do want to ask one question that I guess this, you could say this goes into the negative a little, but I have positive questions after, so we'll we'll keep the universe in balance. But I'm very good at going to the negative. So. Okay, we'll start with you then, <laughs> Rabbi. The uh, what do you do with out and out hate? Because do you get sometimes anonymously or maybe graffiti or things yelled or I don't know what it might be, either for you or for maybe someone in your congregation? Unfortunately, this is really a reality again where we're really experiencing it is primarily in the schools, Mm. you know, where our kids are getting verbally harassed. Um, But for that to happen, doesn't that have to be coming from the other kids, through their parents, through the kids from their parents? Uh, Often the parents are are incredibly shocked. The kids are essentially picking it up from other media sources. And when uh, the parents get called by school officials, the parents are aghast. That's Uh, actually good news. I'm glad to hear that. So that's that's generally the way that it it goes. It seems to be more of a cultural phenomenon right now than a a family phenomenon. Mm. Um, how does one in, encounter it? Um, education. Um, and don't be afraid to fight. It's not a time to be polite. Um, you know, so, hat- uh, hatred is something that needs to be fought. And I'm thinking, how do you, if you have, say you have a middle school child in your congregation so who's experiencing that, it, I mean, this is what you would talk to them about. Stand up for yourself or be proud of who you are or... Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I I told my son that if he was in a situation where you know he's was a he's trained in karate, <laughs> if he was in a situation where he felt that a physical altercation was the answer to the problem, that we would uh, support his decision to go that direction. Um, mm. You know, and unfortunately, that's the world that we live in. Um, so when I say fight, I mean, on the larger scale, obviously I'm not talking about getting in fights like I just did, but I'm talking about, um, you know, being able to use the, strategically use the resources and allies we have in the community to try to create change and educational opportunities. Mm. That's essentially what I, what I mean. But it's, you know, when people are ugly, sometimes you have to be ugly. Mm. Jen? Yeah, this is, you know, it is the times we're living in right now. And when there is hate, you have to do something. And I think that looking out for your allies and jumping, and I think this is one of the strengths of the interfaith movement, is that we are jumping in for each other when something happens. Um, in Salt Lake, there's there's definitely been an outreach over the times. And in Westminster College, too, there's an allying with whoever is being attacked to come to their support. And when that support comes to that community, there's always been an outreach back and saying thank you Mm. because we didn't know what you thought unless you used a word and said you were there. When we talk about international, which we hate is on all different levels. Mm. And I think as a Baha'i, that principle of consultation and using words, there's that fight or flight principle. But I think Baha'is believe in facilitate, the other F word, (laughs) fight, flight, or facilitate conversations. (laughs) Let's get people at the table and start Uh, learning where we have things that overlap, that we all are working towards, and try to think about each other as their brother and sister and come up with answers. The frustration on the international level, there's a a book, um, The World Order of Baha'u'llah and the Advent of Divine Justice by Shoghi Effendi in the Baha'i Faith. And these books address these issues of how do we promote universal peace, which Abdul Baha even came to Salt Lake City and spoke on, and really talked about that the governments of the world have to arise together, united, 
when there is an uprising against some nation's people, the rest of the nations should arise and the leaders should come and support them. Mm. Thank you. I don't know if um, I've experienced out-and-out hate. Um, And I've already mentioned that I'm a little bit Pollyanna and I was a cheerleader. (laughs) And so I'm, yes, we have had in the Salt Lake, our Salt Lake congregation, um, we have a, a rainbow flag that we put out and um, it's been stolen no less than eight times and taken no less than eight times. And um, we just continue to put the flag out. And that's what we will continue to do is put, continue to put the flag out and continue to love as much as we can and support those people that we support. And I don't know if that's a real great answer, but that's just what we do is continue to love, continue to be supportive. And that's where we believe God is calling us to be. Mm. Imam. Yes, um, there's, uh, I compartmentalize uh, into three groups. One is people who understand, who know better, mm-hmm. that the actions of a few don't define the whole. And then there are some people who are not going to change their way of thinking. You, you, leave, you try your best, but in the end you leave it up to God. And then you have some people who are what I call fence sitters, you know, those are those are my target audience. Those are the people I would like to reach out to and explain what you know what we believe and what we don't believe, and to debunk the myths. But what has been found to be most effective, um, this is proven through s- surveys and statistics, is one-on-one. Mm. Because if they have a one-on-one relationship with the Muslim, whether it's a colleague at work or neighbor or a fellow student, no matter what they hear on any uh, news channel, they'll say, nope, that's not true. Because I, that's not my friend. That's not my friend. I know. I know better. So one-on-one relationships is very helpful. Oh, I was so touched with the story I heard about an event in a subway in a big city where a woman was riding the bus alone, and uh, I would almost said a gentleman, but a man went over and was uh, really giving her a hard time because she was wearing a hijab. And a, another woman, total stranger, just walked over, sat by the woman and said, I have not seen you forever. Tell me what you've been up to. And just sat by her. And they just started this conversation. And immediately, the man who was giving them trouble sort of left. I guess he felt outnumbered or maybe th- thought again about what... Anyway, I just... I, I hope we can... Look out for each other that way. When we see something happening, even uh, to people who aren't of our faith uh, or of our faith, that that we can feel free to be the one to to reach out the hand or to, or to invite someone over to our house or whatever it might be. Um, on a cheerier note, how do you see God working in your life or in the lives of people in your congregation? How do you define that even? It, it kind of comes from that same same line of thinking, though, is I will go in a day and I run, I'm running late, and the parking spot comes available right in front of where I need to go. Now, you know, that is that coincidence or does it happen over and over again because there is some kind of grace in God knowing that I sometimes run late? Okay, a lot of times. <laughs> I'm working on it. And that place opens up. Right there and then. And I, I have to say that it happens over and over again. And that's that's such a physical, such a simple little thing. I think more is that that patience that I learned and things that those qualities and that people show up when you need them in mm. your lives, that not only parking lots. So maybe it's learning to observe and be aware of what's happening and kind of put that together. Interesting. Yeah. It, sometimes it's not, I mean— is rarely as obvious as this sea splitting uh-huh. as it did for Moses and the Israelites. That's what I tell my congregation. You have to uh, observe. You have to see God working uh, in your life. For us, it was uh, as a community, it was the, the mosque being built and the timeline of when we started because we can't take a loan from the bank. So we have to collect donations as we're building and how the whole community came together. And speaking of the timeline, when we, we started when we started. If we had started a year later, we would have been in the middle of COVID. Mm. We finished just in time, June 2020. 
So how God works in mysterious ways. What is the name of the mosque? Uh, Utah Islamic Center. Utah Islamic Center. Oh, yes. I have been there. And I think the paint was still drying when I, <laughs> when I first went. <laughs> right. It was a very new building. Any thoughts? Yeah, the, the Kabbalah, the Jew, Jewish mystical tradition, teaches that the first uh, act of creation was God's desire for chesed, for loving kindness. And human beings are unique creatures, arguably, in as much that we're creatures that participate both in the heavenly and in the earthly. And in that nexus between the two, we're here essentially to be expressions of God's loving kindness. And that's the way to connect. Just ask yourself that question, how can I be an expression of God's loving kindness? Mm. Says the guy who just said he told his kid to get in fights at school. <laughs> but very loving fights. Very, All very these different loving. identities that we wear, right? It's complicated. The key to all of that with emotion, obviously, is Viktor Frankl's teaching that between stimulus and response is a space. So if, if I choose to be aggressive in that space after I've paused, mm. um, then I'm acting in a godly way, right? It's Whereas, a choice, not just a knee-jerk e- reaction. Exactly. So it's not a fight-flight response. It's a choice to fight because that's the strategic thing to do in the situation. Mm. Yeah, I oh, I'm I'm with you on that one. I um I think that anytime there's intentionality and expectation, I think God shows up. I think that every moment can be absolutely sacred if we see the sacredness of that moment. I think washing the dishes could actually be sacred. I don't usually get How, there. Tell me about imp- applying intentionality to that. Well, if you're intentional, if you're intentional about being present in that moment, then God shows up. Like you're washing the dishes, you're feeling the the smoothness of the soap and the warmth of the water and you are fully present. I truly think God shows up every single time. Um you can be you can have sacred moments in your car. If you like maybe if you turn down your radio and you keep your middle finger down and you feel the steering wheel and you're fully present in that place, I think God shows up every single time. We I just don't think we notice it. I don't think that we think about that and but intentionality and expectation, if you expect God to be there and you're intentional about it, God's there. No mm. doubt. I've been speaking in good faith today with Rabbi David Levinsky from Temple Har Shalom in Park City, Bishop Carla Long from the Community of Christ, Imam Shuaib Dean of the Utah Islamic Center, and Jan Saeed of the Baha'i Faith. Thank you all for speaking with us today in good faith. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Honored to be here. This episode was produced and edited by Heather Bigley. Thanks to our production team, Austin Ball, Leah King, and Katerina Martinick. Our sound designers include Sam Clausen, Daniel Phillips, and Brandon Lewis. And if you enjoy the show, be sure and leave a comment or review where you get your podcasts and help spread the word. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio.